Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I explore about 100 pages an episode of America's Greatest Writers. I give my thoughts and commentary. My overall goal is to work through the Library of America a little bit at a time. Trigger warning. Before you listen further, I must lay out a trigger warning for you. I know many of you have experienced traumatic things before. So if anyone listening has had an unfortunate experience with gluten, you may not want to listen to this episode. The Octopus by Frank Norris is a landmark of American naturalism. Of the works we have looked at, this one seems to be the best representative of Frank Norris's naturalism, as well as the goals of the genre. Well, what is naturalism? Well, you know, it's 2017, so we just go to Wikipedia to figure that out. It's a good thing it's a short entry, so I'll just read it to you. Naturalism is a literary movement that emphasizes observation and the scientific method in the fictional portrayal of reality. Novelists writing in the naturalist mode include Emile Zola, its founder, Thomas Hardy, Theodore Dreiser, Stephen Crane, and Frank Norris. Naturalism began as a branch of literary realism, and realism that favored logic, fact, and impersonality over the imaginative, symbolic, and supernatural. Dreiser, Crane, and Norris were also journalists, and thus attempted to immerse themselves in the world of fact via the reporter's assumption of detached observation. Although they considered themselves realists, naturalistic authors selected particular parts of reality, misery, corruption, vice, disease, poverty, prostitution, racism, and violence. They were criticized for being pessimistic and for concentrating excessively on the darker aspects of life. The novel would be an experiment where the author could discover and analyze the forces or scientific laws that influence behavior, and these included emotion, hereditary, and environment. Other characters, characteristics of naturalism include detachment, in which the author maintains an impersonal tone and a disinterested point of view, determinism, the opposite of free will, in which characters' fate have been decided, even predetermined, by impersonal forces of nature beyond human control, and a sense that the universe itself is indifferent to human life. The paradox of naturalism is that it holds two contrary or conflicting views. Human behavior is a result of free will, and yet also determined by natural laws. Okay, so that's what Wikipedia says about it. Um, and I think his work, we've already looked at two of his novels, Vandover and the Brute and McTeague, and we see they both kind of fit into this. Um, I think those two works emphasize more the free will side of it. The octopus is going to emphasize much more the impersonal forces and the scientific laws uh, that are shaping uh, people's lives. The octopus was meant to be the first of three works on the life cycle of wheat. The octopus was to be about the production of wheat. The follow-up novel, which I won't be able to look at at least now unless the Library of America publishes it in another version, is The Pit. The Pit is largely about the distribution of wheat through the Chicago grain elevators in futures markets in Chicago. Um, but if you are interested in this topic, uh, you should read um, oh, what's his name? I know his last name is Cronin. I forget his first name. Um, anyways, he's a historian, Cronin. His book's called Nature's Metropolis. It's about Chicago, and it really gets into the details of it. Um, William Cronin, sorry. William Cronin is his name. Now, the third book of this, of this trilogy, of this cycle, was going to be called The Wolf. He never even started it or even had any notes on it, so we really don't quite know what it would have been about. It was supposed to be about the consumption of American wheat in a famine-stricken area of Asia or Europe. 
At the time he wrote The Octopus, I think he was thinking Europe, but maybe later on there's hints that he wanted to set that in Asia. And there's actually hints in The Octopus itself that he was thinking about famine in Asia a little bit. The Octopus was published in 1901, and it took about him a year to write. It's a relatively long work, covering around 500 pages in the Library of America version, but its plot is fairly contained. It is set in the San Joaquin Valley. The characters spend most of their time in a town called Donneville, which is a small train depot town, and the smaller dying city of Guadalajara, and the ranches surrounding this, this area at the, uh, right near the railroad there. One of these is El Rancho Mundo, and the other is Quien Sabe. These wheat ranches are run by our major characters. We also meet many of the people who live and work on these ranches, and the heads of some of the other ranches in the, in the area. Our villain is the octopus, the railroad. Specifically, the Pacific and Southwestern Railroad, the PNSW, as the characters usually abbreviate it. The ranchers are coming off two poor harvests, but they're optimistic that there will be a bonanza crap this year because the soil has been rested. And if you know anything about agriculture in the West, wheat was very extractive of nutrients. So the good side of a couple bad harvests would be that it gave time for those fields to lay fallow and restore some of their, their nutrients. So they're hopeful that this is going to be a bumper crop. The railroad seeks to take advantage of this by raising the rates as high as the market can bear. So this is the main tension in the novel. This is, is both sides are trying to benefit from this bumper crop. However, the second way that the railroad intends to take what it can from the ranchers is a bit more complex. Most of the ranches worked most of the ranchers worked on land that they leased from the railroad. They were guaranteed when the land was uh, they, were, they were guaranteed that when the land was offered for sale by the railroad, the U.S. government, of course, gave this land to the railroad to help support it. It was one of the great examples of corporate welfare in American history. But the railroad was going to sell this land at some future point, and they were promised that the ranchers were promised it would be sold for two dollars and fifty an acre. However, there is no really legally binding contract to the, to, the, to the effect. So some of this land is being squatted on, some, some of it's being leased uh, to the ranchers by the railroad. And then there's, I think there's some land farther away from the railroad that the ranchers themselves own. So it's kind of, these ranches are kind of mixed up in this way. However, most of the land has been improved and is worth considerably more if it were to be sold on the free market. Uh, but it was improved not by the railroad, but by the ranchers. On the other hand, the railroad could say this land wouldn't be worth as much if it wasn't for the railroad running right next to them. So there is this um, conflict. At the start of the novel, the ranchers are unsure if the railroad will sell the land at all, and they're unsure of the price. Um, if it's sold for $2.50, the ranchers can bear that cost easy enough. Um, if it's sold for higher, then that's going to be trouble. The market price will ruin most ranchers, as, a, as will a too high rate on freight. So that's, that's the setting for this novel and the main tension. All, how all this works out over about a year's time is the focus of the novel, The Octopus. This is really a character-driven novel, uh, even more so than Norris's other novels I looked at. The Octopus has characters that are easy to fall in love with. Uh, Vandover and the Brutes characters are kind of disgusting, and, 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 and you kind of enjoy watching them fail. McTeague's characters are... The characters in McTeague are... They're so tragic, and it, it's kind of horrible to watch them fail. But they're not really characters you, 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 know, you want to spend much time with. They seem kind of shallow and, and bitter in their own way. Um, these characters are really well-developed, um, and you really like these. And when you see bad things happen to them, um, and when you see good things happen to them, you really feel emotionally 
for what's happen for what happens. Um, we're really invested in their fate. While it's not the enjoyable voyeurism of Andover and the Brute or the nastiness of McTeague, um, these are good people. They're sometimes hard people. They sometimes make decisions we wouldn't make. Um, and they're forced into doing bad things. They're forced into corruption and they're forced into um, uh, other unfortunate situations. And they're sometimes unfair in their own way. And they're flawed. But to, 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 to witness their decline, it's really quite brutal. Um, so let's look at these characters. Now, when we make our list of the heroes of American literature, who do we include in here? Han Solo, Tom Joad, uh, Bill Denbro, Indiana Jones, Atticus Finch. I, I didn't read the new book about him, so I, I've heard that's tested a little bit. But when I was growing up, Atticus Finch was an American hero. Or Adam Trask from East of Eden. But where on the list is Buck Annixter? How does Buck Annixter not enter the lists of the greatest heroes in American writing? Uh, maybe it's because not many people read The Octopus these days. I, I still can't, after reading this novel, I can't think of him without feeling chills. He's larger than life. He's the moral center of the novel. He's the character that has the most strong arc. And he's the character we, we somehow f feel most attached to. I don't even know if this was uh, Norris's intention because there's other characters here who you get the sense were Norris's supposed to be Norris's moral center, but it's really Buck Annister who who steps up as as the center of the novel. He is the owner and operator of the Chiquian Sabe Rancho. He's a bachelor who doesn't want anything to do with what he calls females. He's very hard and very cynical. He's a, he's a relatively young guy who inherited some money and he, and he was able to use that to buy up um, the ranch. When we first meet him. He is actually firing someone. But we also learn that he's a, a gunslinger. He's a man capable of great love for his community. Um, at first look, he is a cruel man. But by, by the end, we know that he is the heart of the resistance to the railroad and the one who knows that the nature of the struggle must take. He, he understands the reality more than so many, so many other, other characters. When he marries the milkmaid Hilma Tree, he comes to be not only kind of a, a source of resistance, but also a warm and generous man and a husband. He's able to sacrifice for other people in the community. And his ultimate sacrifice for the people of, of Bonneville is really something to behold. It's one of the great moments in American literature, I think. Now, the name of his ranch in English is Who Knows, or It's a Wonder, or, or whatever, Quien Sabe uh, in, Spanish, in the Spanish. Okay, the next character, Magnus Derrick. As his name suggests, he's a bit of a feudal lord. Annixter is a more practical capitalist, perhaps, but Magnus Derrick sits on his reputation and his wealth. He has political ambitions, or at least he used to have political ambitions. He sees his role kind of as almost a feudal lord. He bases his reputation on his morality. He represents the limits of feudal authority and morality in the face of rampant, brutal, and violent capitalism. Now, he proves to be no match for the railroad. He's actually one of the characters that's defeated most easily and simply. Uh, as we'll see later on, it's literally like a newspaper article that destroys this, this great man. He owns the largest ranch in the area, the Los Muertos Rancho. I think it's about 10,000 acres. And notice the name of this ranch is The Dead. In English. Heron Derrick. This is Magnus's son. He's the manager of the Los Muertos Rancho and the day-to-day -day voice of Magnus. He's much younger, he's more flexible in principles than his father, um, 
But he is his father's son at the end of the day, and he's also his representative. He's his, the day-to-day voice, he, and he does a lot of the the managing of, of both the political aspects of their struggle and the and the running of the ranch. Next, Lyman Derrick. This is Magnus's other son. He is a San Francisco lawyer. Uh, he also has political ambitions, uh, more direct and, and more pressing than Magnus's kind of old uh, desire to be a politician. He betrays his family and their community to the railroad. He is the cynical march of progress. He's educated, he's urban, but he's also corrupt and he lacks any moral center. At the end of the novel, he's well on his way become, to becoming the governor of California. Hilma Tree. She's a dairy girl. She works on Buck Anister's ranch, uh, basically working with the cows, making cheese, milk, whatever. Uh, he, she's a, the girl who eventually warms Buck Anister's heart and becomes his wife. She's certainly one of the more well-developed of Frank Norris's female characters that I came across. Mm-hmm. She's the every woman of the countryside uh, with an authentic goodness that comes from living in the countryside. Um, Gerslinger. Gerslinger, not a major character in the novel, but he, he has an important role. He's the stooge of the railroad and writes for the local newspaper that is the most pro-railroad. This is the Bonneville Mercury. As you may know just from history, newspapers in 100 years ago or more tended to be more partisan and more openly political. These days, there's this kind of hard, well, at least supposedly a hard line between the editorial section and the news section of newspapers. I don't want to get into the debates about how objective newspapers are today, but they certainly weren't objective 100 years or 150 years ago when newspapers had direct party loyalties and they published articles that were openly political. In this case, the Bonneville Mercury, from its name Mercury, you can tell it's kind of pro-railroad. He uses the press to help bring down the ranches and he enriches himself in the process. And he's another just corrupt and um, following character. Presley. He is a poet who hangs around Los Muertos Rancho. He is one of the characters who has an internal arc. Uh, most of the characters here are acted upon. They're, they're victims. Uh, but some characters, uh, particularly like Annixter, uh, this guy Presley, and another character we'll meet later, Dyke, undergo more deeper changes internally. Presley starts off the novel as a romantic, wanting to write an epic of the West, focusing on the conquest of the continent by hardworking commoners. So he's got this kind of populist message, but it's a very optimistic story. It's about how the common people defeated, conquered, you know, conquered the West and settled it. By the end of the book, he's become a socialist, and he, but he's unable to provide any help to the people of the San Joaquin. He ends up uh, broken by his own impotence. And here's a description of, of Presley. This is, comes early in the novel in chapter one. He's actually the first character we meet. Uh, this is page 583 of the Library of America version. Beside him, Presley made the sharpest of contrast. This is besides um, Heron, Derek. Presley seemed to have come of a mixed origin, appeared to have nature more composite, a temperament more complex. Unlike Heron, Derek, he seemed more of a character than a type. His son had browned his face till it was almost swarthy. His eyes were a dark brown, and his forehead was the forehead of an intellectual, wide and high, with a certain unmistakable lift about it that argued education, not only of himself, but of the people before him. The impression conveyed by his mouth and chin was that of a delicate and highly sensitive nature. The lips thin and loosely shut out, shut together, the chin small and rather receding. One guessed that Presley's refinement had been gained only by the certain loss of strength. One expected to find him nervous, introspective, and discover that his mental life 
was not at all the result of impressions and sensations that came to him from without, but rather the thoughts and reflections germinating from within. Though morbidly sensitive to changes in his physical surroundings, he would be slow to act upon such, such sensations, would not, would not prove impulsive, not because he was sluggish, but because he was merely irresolute. It could be foreseen that morale, morally he was of the sort who, avoided, who avoid evil through good taste, lack of decision, and want of opportunity. His temperament was that of the poet. When he told himself he had been thinking, he deceived himself. He had, on such occasions, been only brooding. All right, so that's that's our kind of introduction to to Presley. And he has a very interesting story, and and he's we'll 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 see his fate throughout the, uh, the next four episodes. The next character is Vanamy. Vanamy is the wandering mystic of the countryside. And I think this is our first, uh, for this podcast, this is our first re- example of, of kind of the rural mystic. This is really an archetype of American literature. You certainly see it in Steinbeck. Um, well, I forget the name of the novel, but we'll get to that someday. Um, Vanamy, our wandering mystic. Um, seems Americans like to put these things in the, in the countryside. Someone who's kind of tied to the land. Someone who has this kind of intimate, almost religious or spiritual relationship with the land. He works various jobs. Um, and he doesn't, isn't bothered by kind of the insecurity and the precariousness of his life. He often speaks with Presley. And at one point in the novel, it's said that, you know, like Presley is the poet by training and intention. Vanamy is kind of the natural poet, the poet by, by spirit. He's working through personal trauma over the loss of his beloved Angeli, Varian. And she died something like 18 years earlier when he was still a very young man. So it's kind of this deep trauma he still experiences from the loss of a loved one years and years ago. He tries to correct Presley's errors from time to time. He sees the changes in the land in a more naturalistic way. So while Presley may start out, we want to say Presley's the author here. But in many ways, Vanamy is more the author if we accept the principles of naturalism. Because Vanamy is the is the spokesman for naturalism here, it says that we just kind of have to go on with with life. That these changes happen, and there's not much we can do about it. It's almost kind of a a, a Buddhist sentiment uh, in Vanamy. This may make him more flexible, but he's also not able to provide help to any of the characters. He's actually the most impotent of any of the characters because he's he's completely useless. He doesn't even try to help. Presley at least tries to help the farmers. Next, we have the Dykes. I'll talk about a whole family here. The Dyke family is made up of Dyke, who's a railroad engineer who lost his job when he refused to work for slave wages. Now, he feels really bitter about this because he earlier scabbed during the strike, a railroad strike. After the strike, when wages were cut for all the remaining engineers and rail workers, Dyke said, well, hey, I was I scabbed for you. I worked for you through the strike. I risked my life doing so. Why do you cut my wages too? And when he refused to accept the pay cut, he quit and he gets blacklisted. Um, so that's his story. You have also his mother and his daughter. There's, I think the wife died. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I forgot, but it's just mentioned in passing at some point. What happened to his daughter's mother? He decides he's going to take up the farming of hops. He thinks this can avoid the trouble that the wheat farmers face. Uh, and he still has an overall faith that the railroad will treat him right, uh, you know, if he takes up the growing of hops. But when he faces fail- failure, he becomes a bandit, and the Dyke family is uh, has a tragic end. The next family is the Hoovens. The Hooven is a German immigrant. He's often called Bismarck by the other characters. He's a tenant on the Los Muertos Rancho. 
Hooven proves to be a reliable ally to the ranchers, but is it's really the women of his life who are the most important to our story. His elder daughter, Minna, his younger daughter, Hilda, and his wife, Mrs. Hooven. We'll speak more of them probably in the final episode of the series. Um, Cedar Quisk. So Cedar Quist is kind of a fair-weather ally of the ranchers. He, he talks to them as if he's an ally, but he's, his sides are really on the side of capital. He thinks the future of the ranchers is in supplying the Asian market with American wheat. Um, of course, as a shipbuilder, he would think this way. I mean, he, he's self-interested. In try, he wants to convince the ranchers to ship their wheat um, to, the, to, the, to the Far East. Ironically, the wheat from Los Muertos that we follow throughout this novel ends up following the path that Cedar Quist proposed to the East. It ends up on a boat. He is, in the end, indifferent to the fate of the ranchers, um, and he's yet another arm of the octopus. And his family, the Cedarquist family, is really at the heart of one of the most gut-wrenching scenes of this novel in the second-to-last chapter. S. Behrman. S. Behrman is our villain. He's the local agent of the Pacific and Southwestern Railroad. He implements the plan to destroy the ranchers and put himself, puts himself in a position to benefit personally from their fall. He is also a seller of mortgages, and he often works to bind ranchers to his interests through debt. Um, he presents himself as as kind of just the kind of the friend part of the community, but in fact, he is the the spokesperson of the PNSW. Um, whether he's really villainous or not is something we'll have to take up in the final part of this series. Um, it's an interesting question, and and even Presley has to start to doubt whether the the railroad or the individuals of the railroad can be blamed for what happens. Um, so we've been going on for 25 minutes, and I haven't yet even gotten into the story. Um, my plan is to look at about three chapters. So I'm going to just take a little break here, come back, and talk about the first three chapters of The Octopus. And I'm back. So I, I had to tutor for a couple hours. It's one of my ways I make money out here. And... Um, and then I ate. So, but anyways, I'm back, and I'm going to finish up with this analysis of of the first part of the octopus. We'll look at the first three chapters. Um, the book's 500 pages in the Library of America version, as I said, and it's 12. Is that right? Nine? No, no, it's 15 chapters. So I'll, I'll do this over five episodes. But let's start with chapter one. This chapter simply follows this character Presley, this poet, as he tours the region on his bicycle. So it allows Frank Norris to like kind of show us the area and it allows him to meet some of the main characters. The first person he meets is Hooven, who is worried that Magnus is going to release his tenants. So a rumor has been floating around that Magnus Derek is going to release his tenants and cultivate all the land himself, just to get the most out of this bumper crop. Um, so that's that. And Presley just says, you got to ask the Heron. So he goes to Heron, Derek, who's running the ranch, and he sets up the optimism about the next harvest, but also establishes concerns that the railroad will simply raise the freight rates on wheat to take all the profits from this bumper crop. Um, Presley goes around and then next he meets Dyke and we get the story of how he was fired from the railroad and has decided to take up the growing of hops. Presley then goes to eat lunch uh, and after that goes to the Kiansabe Ranch, where we're introduced to Annexter. 
Um, and the description of Annixter is, is pretty memorable. It's on page 596. Quote, Annixter, who worked the Kian Sabe Ranch, some 4,000 acres of rich clay and heavy loams, was a very young man, younger even than Presley, like him a college graduate. He looked never a year older than he was. He was smooth-shaven and lean-built, but his youthful appearance was offset by a certain male cast of countenance. The lower lip thrust out, the chin large and deftly cleft. His university course had hardened rather than polished him. He still remained one of the people, round almost to insolence, direct in speech, intolerant in his opinions, relying upon absolutely no one but himself. Yet with all this, of this, an astonishing degree of intelligence, and possessed of an executive ability little short of positive genius. He was a ferocious worker, allowing himself no pleasures, and exacting the same degree of energy from all his subordinates. He was widely hated and was widely trusted. Everyone spoke of his crusty temper and bullying disposition, invariably qualifying the statement with the condemnation or commendation of his resources and capabilities. The devil of a driver, a hard man to get out along with, obstinate, contrary, cantankerous, but brains, no doubt of that, brains to his boots. Unquote. So that's our introduction to Annixter, um, really the, the central character in a lot of ways. He's the character that undergoes the most change before the end of the story. We learn that Annixter is building a barn, which is a symbol of the improvements made by the ranchers to the land. One of the ongoing debates in this novel is who's responsible for the value to this land. The railroad for being there and moving the goods out, or is it the farmers for working the land and developing it? And the Annexer's barn is a symbol of that. Finally, Presley meets Vanime, who is working at this time as a shepherd. Um, and here's how he's described. <clears throat> Many of the characters here are quite young, actually. Quote, the shepherd was a man of about 35. He was very lean and spare. The brown canvas overalls were thrust into lace boots. A cartridge belt without any cartridges encircled his waist. A gray flannel shirt open at his throat showed his breast, tanned and ruddy. He wore no hat. His hair was very black and very long. A pointed beard covered his chin, growing straight and fine from the hollow cheeks. The absence of any covering on his head was no doubt habitual with him, for his face was as brown as an Indian's, a ruddy brown, quite different from Presley's dark olive. To Presley's more abundantly keen observation, the general impression of the shepherd's face was intensely interesting. It was uncommon to an astonishing degree. Um, we get a little bit more about the story about the temperament and the attitude of this Vanamy a few pages later. Quote, of a temperament similar in many ways to Presley's, there were capa capabilities in Vanamy that were not ordinary to be found in the rank and file of men. Living close to nature, a poet by instinct, where Presley was but a poet by training, there developed in him a great sensitiveness to beauty and almost abnormal capacity for great happiness and great sorrow. Um, anyways, that's Vanamy. And we learn that he's never recovered from the death of Angeli 18 years previously. So again, he was quite a young man when this tragic event happened to him. So finally in this chapter, we meet Presley's project, his great epic on the West. And in a, in a way, it's sort of a character. It, it evolves too throughout the course of the novel. He's musing on his epic poem, which is going to be about um, the conquest of the West by the common folk. This is his, the great story of the West. And it parallels pretty nicely the story of the frontier and how Americans at the time of Norris's writing, we're seeing the story of the West, um, kind of the Wild West tamed by these intrepid uh, settlers. 
But while he's doing this, the epic poem in his mind is literally disrupted by the arrival of a very loud train, which tears through the community um, and kills many sheep that had wandered onto the track. Um, the description of this event leaves no room for interpretation. The railroad is the villain of this tale, and it will destroy the San Joaquin as easily as it destroyed the sheep. And at the end of this chapter on page 617, we get this description of what happened. Then, faint and prolonged, across the levels of the ranch, he heard the engine whistling for Bonneville. Again and again, at rapid intervals in its flying course, it whistled for road crossings, for sharp curves, for trestles. Ominous notes, hoarse, bellowing, ringing, with the accents of menace and defiance. And abruptly, Presley saw again in his imagination the galloping monster, the terror of steel and steam, with its single eye, cyclopean, red, shooting from horizon to horizon, and saw it now as a symbol of a vast power, huge, terrible, flinging an echo of its thunder over all the ranches of the valley, leaving blood and destruction in its path. The Leviathan, with tentacles of steel clenching into the soil, the soulless force, the iron-powered, the iron-hearted power, the monster, the colossus, the octopus. And that is, is how the chapter ends. Chapter one. Um, chapter two. This chapter does more to set up the specific threat of the railroad. Presley sees it a bit artistically here. He, he's a bit over the top even in his imagining of, of the threat of the railroad. But Derricks, the Derricks, especially Heron Derrick, understand the threat more specifically. Uh, Magnus is returning from the city, I think San Francisco maybe, um, to report that they lost a lawsuit uh, against the railroad. We also meet Mrs. Derrick, who is, is very uncomfortable presence on the wheat farms, and we get a bit of her backstory. We're suggested again to the Derricks near feudal situation. Um, feudalism, of course, saw women forced to move around for political marriages and move to places they weren't familiar, different cultures, different languages. Uh, and that's sort of what happens to Mrs. Derrick. She gets kind of thrust into the wheat fields. Uh, she's dutiful. She serves, but she's um, not only a victim of the railroad here, she's a victim kind of of, the, of, of Magnus and his, his desires for her. We also get our description of Magnus here on page 627. And um, as, as I already suggested several times, he is presented as the, the more, uh, like a feudal lord, uh, a moral leader. He's not the moral center of the novel. I almost said that, but he's a, yeah, he's just this, uh, this larger than life figure. But Magnus was in every sense a pro the prominent man. In whatever circle he moved, he was the chief figure. Instinctively, other men looked to him as the leader. He himself was proud of this distinction. It assumed the great manner very easily and carried it well. As a public speaker, he was one of the, la the last of the followers of the old school of orators. He even carried the diction and manner of his rostrum into public li private life. It was said of him that his, at his most colloquial conversation could be taken down in shorthand and read off as an admirable specimen of pure, well-chosen English. He loved to do things upon a grand scale, to preside, to dominate. In his good humor, there was something Jovian. When angry, everyone around him trembled. But he had not the genius for detail, was not patient. A certain grandiose lavishness of his disposition occupied itself more with results than with means. He was always ready to take chances, to hazard everything on the hopes of a colossal returns. In the mining days at Placerville, there was no more redoubtable poker player in the country. Um, and that ends that quote for now. Um, 
Certainly, we have in Magnus a very uh, impressive figure, but a figure who is going to be one of the have the farthest to fall in that way um, because of that. So Magnus and S. Behrman discuss the situation. Um, Behrman, the, the representative of the railroad, tries to suggest that, oh, this is business and they can all be friends. But the moralistic Magnus Derek cannot help but notice the corruption and unfairness in the road's business. At the same time, Annixter comes by and spars with Behrman over the opening in the fence that allowed the sheep onto it. Uh, Behrman says it's the rancher's duty to keep the fences up. And Annixter, you know, has some response to that. Now, through Annixter, we're then introduced to the trees and most importantly, the young woman Hilma Tree. Um, we're also introduced to Delaney, one of Annixter's employee, employees. Now, he has a, a fairly undefined relationship with, with Hilma. There's certainly flirting going on and friendship going on. Hilma describes him as a close friend. Um, now, this enrages Annixter, who's already beginning to show signs that he has at least sexual attraction, if not deeper feelings for, for Hilma Tree. Uh, and so when he, he kind of hears about uh, Hilma, or Hilma's telling him about her, her, you know, having company with Del Delaney, who's working on the farm, and then Annexter goes over to Delaney and uses the break in the fence as an excuse to fire Delaney. Um, it's kind of seen as a minor issue here, maybe just a reflection of, of Annexter's cantankerous nature. But as the novel develops, it becomes a very important point that Delaney was fired and has a grievance against um, Buck Annixter. Then we get to chapter three. Uh, this chapter is introducing us to the other ranchers um, of Bonneville and of the San Joaquin Valley. They meet at Los Muertos Rancho at um, the, the Derrick place to discuss their response to the failed lawsuit and the general capricious nature of the railroad. They despair that organizing and legal cases had not been working in the past. Um, they simply don't know how to really go forward here. Uh, it seems that the courts, the politics, all the power of the states are against the ranchers and on the side of the railroad. This ranchers league is divided between Magnus and some of the others, his friends and some others who want to maybe stay within the law. Uh, they want to keep their response legal and entirely ethical. Um, certainly, they don't want bribing to be involved. Um, and then there's those who want to bribe officials or manipulate elections to get their friends uh, into the right places, particularly the Interstate Commerce Commission. The Interstate Commerce Commission was one of the first regulatory bodies uh, that came out of the industrial era in America, and it focused on regulating the price of freight and things like that. Um, and they thought if we can get our right people on there, they can set the rate, you know, artificially low. Annexter, it's, he's got an interesting development in this chapter because he starts out skeptical of the whole thing, but he ends up being one of the major advocates of, of acting politically. He knows that, um, that this is just bribery. He's the most honest about it, that there's no other way of talking about it, that the only way you can guarantee... Um, them to these people in these positions to vote the way you want them to is to bribe them. And if you can bribe them, that means they're dishonest. And if they're dishonest, it means they can be bribed by the railroad. So he knows from the beginning um, that it's kind of futile, but he's willing to try. And he, he wants to make an effort of the having the league pool its money to maybe influence a few elections or bribe um, some people for the Interstate Commerce Commission. 
The problem is, in the end, the railroad can pay more. Millions to the league's thousands. So they discuss this, and they more or less agree to do something about this. But uh, Derek, he says, I'm not going to do this. It's immoral. It's unethical. It's just bribery. It's outside of my uh, moral conscience. They also discuss the other, the secondary issue dealing with the railroad, which is the lands uh, that they are squatting on or leasing. And a circular goes around announcing that the railroad will begin selling lands to the settlers. And it's worded in a, this is how it's worded in the circular. In ascertaining the value of the land, any improvement that the settler or any other person may, may have on the lands will not be taken into consideration. Neither will the price be increased in consequence thereof. Settlers are thus ensured that in addition to being accorded the first privilege of purchase at the guarded price, they will be protected in their improvements. The lands are not uniform in price, but are offered at various figures from $2.50 upward per acre. Usually land covered with tall timber is held at $5 per acre, and that with pine at $10 per acre. Most is for sale at $2.50 and $5. Um, and that's the circular. So it's, it's, it is a sort of promise that they're going to get this land, most of this land, for about $2.50 an acre. Um, and that's not going to be what happens, and we'll see about that in the next episode. But that's where I'll leave it for now. Um, we'll pick this up next time and look at the next 100 pages of the octopus and see um, what happens to these characters. Um, one side note, though, um, sometimes I just read these texts. Often I, I, I commute a lot, so often I, I download audiobook versions of these books. LibriVox is doing great work of getting volunteers to record various audiobook versions of, of works that are in the public domain. And Octopus is in the public domain, of course. And they just have a wonderful audiobook version. The, the, the gentleman who recorded it just did a really good job. It's extremely professional. It's one of the best recordings I've heard on that um, from that wonderful project. Um, so check it out if you're interested in reading, along with me, Frank Norris's The Octopus. Um, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, subscribe on iTunes or on Podbean or somewhere else. I, I would love to also hear from you. Uh, you can check, you can contact me directly on the, on the, through Podbean or through iTunes, or you can email me at hundredpagescast at gmail.com and I'll get back to you with my replies. Uh, thank you for listening and I'll see you in 100 pages.